Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. So because everybody really enjoyed the spiritual shower thoughts episode we did a couple of weeks ago, actually, it might have been a month ago, but now I don't even know. Time does not exist. We decided to do a second one. So this is the second spiritual shower thoughts episode. Thank you to people who offered their suggestions on our IG page. We really appreciate it. If you want to have input in this in the future, please follow us on IG. We do typically put out a kind of feeler for a place for you to submit any spiritual shower thoughts that you have for us to give our opinions on. But before we get into our weird takes, I'm going to pass it over to Fel, who has our What Happened on This Day. Alrighty. So, on this day, Jules Jean-Baptiste Vincent Baudet, uh, <laughs> somewhere a French person just cried, who was born on uh, June 13th, 1870, was a Belgian bacteriologist and immunologist who discovered the complement, a complex of proteins in the blood that causes the destruction of foreign cells in an immune response. He also isolated the bacterium responsible for whooping cough, for she later developed a vaccine, which is very pertinent right now. Good for him. <laughs> it's actually a really good vaccine as well, except in New Zealand, apparently they have really bad issues with whooping cough. I'm not quite sure why, but yeah, it's really interesting how it's like quite localized. Cool. Well, let's pop into it then. Creatures who have shown high intelligence and rituals. So monkeys, ravens, do we think that they have higher powers? (laughs) (laughs) The silence in this chat right now. Um, I kind of came to this idea because basically I think a lot of magical stuff is like very heavily anthropomorphic. But then we've got this idea of animism, which kind of seems to go against that. And we know from science that many kind of higher order creatures show quite a higher level of intellect. Um, and um, for example, crows can plan, they can, they can plan ahead. There's um, a really wonderful woman called Professor Nicola Clayton, who I was lucky enough to see a seminar for. And she was saying that crows have a similar level of intellect to like a young child because they have that kind of level of foresight. So I guess I wanted to pose the idea like, if they have that that ability to plan, then do they have the ability to access magical powers? Do they have the, the ability to kind of interface with the divine? Or is it purely a human thing? Huh. That's a good question, too, because ravens have been shown to hold like a congress. I don't even know what the hell they do with their congress. Probably more productive than the American congress. but they'll like all and like they have different languages too like you'll notice ravens specifically from different parts of the world can't understand each other verbally because they have different accents so fascinating yeah i i hmm i mean it's hard to say because i feel like yeah because we are so human-centric we often view animals as being lesser and then i suppose it kind of gets into like a weird animist perspective of things of like, is there a higher spirit inside of the animal? You know, people always joke, like, my cat's talking to the ghost or my cat's looking at the ghost. There's kind of this idea that we have, at least in a lot of cultures, that this idea that animals, because they're more primal, have a deeper access to spirit. So there could be something to that. Now, I think what's interesting about this question is because it's not just, like, can they interact with it? It's like, but almost like, can they practice religion consciously? Whereas I kind of view animals as a very liminal thing in a lot of ways, kind of sometimes straddling 
the more than human world. But this idea of being with higher intelligence, like ravens, crows, or now I'm thinking about octopi. Maybe even like elephants, because they they yeah. show that they have grieving rituals for their yeah. dead. So it's, it, you know, there are some kind of rituals which are parallel to what we see in human populations, but can we kind of carry that over the whole way? Yeah, I think it's, that's a very interesting question. I'm inclined to say no, but I do think that animals, they're more in tune to their senses because to them, their senses are more important for survival, right? So in that way, they might seem maybe a little bit more spiritual, like a whole cat's sinkus thing, you know, all of that, or really any kind of like rituals that these animals might have. It's more a method of survival. And I don't know, like, that's the thing. I think they do have intelligence and that can be used for some things and I do think it leads to some very interesting phenomena that you probably could use in spirituality however I don't think that any animal has the same like the intelligence to the point that humans do in terms of being able to like practice or follow a religion I feel like most of their like rituals are more out of necessity this idea of evolution really more than anything like spiritually based but you know you could also make the argument like I've also I haven't actually looked into this so I can't speak for sure but it would be interesting to see if maybe some of the animals that are associated with a lot of the different gods and goddesses of different pantheons maybe have higher than, you know, quote unquote, normal intelligence for other animals like ravens or like ravens are associated with Odin, I think, among, you know, and a couple other deities. And so I'd be curious to see if maybe some of the common like animal associations, like foxes, I think are also an animal that's commonly associated with some deities and they're also considered to be of high intelligence so is that the case for maybe all the animals that are associated with the divine and if so is there a reason for that could be something interesting to consider and look into i kind of get tied up on this because i think from an animist perspective it's there is definitely a level of spirituality inherent to every creature so from that sense i believe it but then if i look from a more scientific perspective i think about the level of intellect we can see in crows for example And we see that it's equivalent to, say, that of a young child. Now, I think of a young child trying to do magical or ritual. And then that kind of analogy starts to break down. But the only the way I can explain that is maybe the types of systems are just something so foreign to us as humans that it's not something that we can understand. Or like you like you say, it's more survival based. It's more primal. And so it's not something that we can kind of relate to, especially because so many magical systems are so based on kind of these anthropomorphic human concepts. Even even the divine feminine and masculine, you could argue, are very human-centric when that concept doesn't apply equally across the animal kingdom. Yeah, it's interesting they bring up children because I think children are they're fascinating to observe. And like some of my own recollect- recollections of being a child. But I mean, from what I've observed of children, it, they're just constant myth makers, you know, and a lot of kids believe in magic <laughs> of some degree. Like I remember I, I worked with a lot of preschool kids and they would like have magic wands and like be casting spells. Definitely it wasn't to the same like theoretical, uh, for those who can't see me, obviously I put casting spells in quotes. Uh, now, obviously children don't have the same like philosophical level as adults do, but you know, children when they're of a certain age can, like, even when they're very young can like, conceptualize of gods or of god i mean i was a pretty religious (laughs) five-year-old and i think there is 
they can't conceptualize it in the same way as adults do. I don't know. I think even if we're looking at children, children can believe in in gods and like the amount of times I've spoken to a child. Like one time I was talking to a preschooler. They were like, you need to come into the classroom. There's a ghost. And they were like trying to exercise the ghost of this classroom. And I was like, what is happening? And these are preschoolers. So like that's like four or five, or at least where the school that I was working at. So four or five year olds were doing levels of ritual. So I I think there is something to that. But I think, yeah, the ritual would not necessarily look like how we as adults conceptualize of it. I mean, I remember... When I was young, I asked my dad once, I was like, if aliens exist, do they believe in the Christian God? Because I was like hung up on this idea of like the Christian God's the only true God. And I was like, do would aliens have to believe in this God? And my dad was just like, why? Why, <laughs> why are you asking this question? But that's another interesting idea because a lot of our own beliefs are, as you said, like very human centric, which is why I as a kid got hung up on this idea of if aliens would believe in Jesus because they're aliens. <laughs> They're not humans. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole other shower thought, but. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, I do think that children are capable of magic simply on the basis of that they are limitless in their thinking. And Mm -hmm. so nothing is truly impossible to them, which means that they, their capabilities of, like, because that's one of the things we talk about sometimes within our own communities. It's like, the only limits that you have in magic are the limits that you put upon yourself. Um, when you transcend those, then you your opportunities are, you know, open much, much more widely. And so children haven't necessarily learned the rules of society. And so when they think about things, they don't think about them within the limits that are typically, you know, surrounding maybe more adult behavior and, and thought. So in that way, I do think that in many ways, children are very much so capable of magic, although in a less defined manner, as Fel pointed out. I think the thing that we need to kind of differentiate between like with crows and children is when we're talking about intelligence what are we referring to because there's like simple recognition and then um fitting back of a behavior right like a, i think what is it a parakeet that like you say something and it's right back at you um like that kind of thing so is is it's more of like a recognition type of mechanism that we're calling intelligence or is it something more because i think there's a difference between intelligence and cognizance or an understanding like a true conceptual understanding of what's happening like this higher these higher kind of ideas I think that's really the important distinction to have there that's a really good point I actually wish I'd made more notes on on this before our episode because um Professor Clayton has some really interesting ideas on this her work centered around problem solving and basically comparing toddlers and crows which sounds like a fascinating job um but I think the key findings from her work were really that crows have this sense of time and ability to plan forward and that's something that we don't necessarily see in other creatures it's only one aspect of intelligence but there's kind of problem solving and kind of object permanence which we don't necessarily see and I think that is kind of essential for when you're doing kind of a magical working obviously because you have to think about the future and a lot of animals are kind of primal enough that they're kind of living in the now if that makes sense they're kind of responding to instinct whereas things like crows are not necessarily doing that all the time. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Again, I like I personally am very skeptic of this idea, but I also, I think I'm like the least animistic out of all of us. I just think that in regards of like the time and the planning thing, like that's also just a survival mechanism. Like the time makes sense because they're birds, right? So I don't know. I actually, don't, I don't know anything about crows. I am not an ecologist, okay? My, my dealings are with things that are smaller than 
what's observable. But like if they are a migratory bird, then the whole planning or like being time sensitive makes sense, like knowing when to move to what places. So to me, it's more just like a survival thing that probably evolved over time, this sense of knowing. But it is, again, like it is possible that there is some kind of like more divine connection that we just aren't aware of. And if you have like an animistic mindset, I can definitely see where that connection will be drawn for sure. I guess my follow-up question would be, so like crows also have the ability to create an economy. There's fascinating observations of crows trading with one another. And like, you, we have no idea how they make decisions or how, what their economy is based on. But they do have some sort of bartering, like a economic bartering system, which is interesting because then my follow-up question to, to you, Astra, would be, well, then what, what sets us apart from animals and I know that's like I've, like there's a lot of like oh it's obvious but when does the point become it's just because one could argue a lot of things that humans do are just survival skills that have gone into the microcosm I mean like wanting to be accepted by a community is a survival skill wanting to control something is a survivor survival skill so my question would be when does that when does that bleed into like ritual and religion and out of survival you know yeah, that's a good question. I I think the key is recognition. And let me explain that. What I mean by that. So like we so if we did do things that were simply for survival, like we would know that and we would be okay with that if we weren't aware that perhaps there's something more. I think that's where the biggest difference is that humans we long for a connection for something more, for a connection with the divine, like we touched upon in our Built for Divinity episode. And I think like a recognition of that element is probably what puts humans maybe above or like on a separate kind of plane than animals. Not to say that we're necessarily better because like plants and animals do some wacko stuff that's like I wish we could do. But I think it's like that recognition of the fact that like there is something bigger um, kind of outside of our physical day-to-day like life that we aren't that we are aware of that maybe animals are not. Um, although I can't, we can't say for sure, right? Because we don't, we don't know what animals are or aren't aware of because we're not animals. And we are, but not like, you know what I mean? That's what I would argue the difference is, but I don't know. <laughs> to be totally honest, I didn't come prepared for a philosophical discussion. I think we should do an episode on religion and animals. It would be it would be a good episode, I think, for to do like more on religion in other other species <laughs> to see like how prevalent this is because I feel like it's a lot deeper than maybe we originally thought. Yeah, that maybe yeah, that, that that could be a whole whole thing. We could do a whole episode on that. Yeah, especially when yeah. you look at like rituals of other animals, like elephants, like we were talking about. I don't know. That'd be a fun episode. We should Something do that. Something to think about. It gives you more time to think of a of an answer. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Maybe I'll change my mind. Who knows? Yeah. So the next one, this is kind of funny. I giggled when I I saw it. And it's what happens if you eat a binding spell? Um, So this was related to when I was making a smoothie and um, I accidentally got something else from my freezer into my smoothie. Um, (laughs) And it just prompted the thought like, what you know, because people use those freezer binding spells. If you're not familiar with these, this is when you basically you put... Um, I think often like a petition um, with the person's name on, for example, whatever other correspondence is, and then you put that in the freezer. And the idea is that you're freezing out the the person and you're you're neutralizing the effect of against them. So basically, if you if you eat that, like, are you taking in that effect? And there was a related question that somebody contributed, which was, if someone made eclipse water and tricked someone else into drinking it without them knowing, 
A, what would happen to them? And B, if something bad did happen to them, does it count as a hex? I have no intention of doing this, but I have been wondering about it. <laughs> um, so I guess, I guess the kind of general overarching question is like, how much does the intent matter? And like, what effect does ingesting something like that have? So there's a couple things I was thinking about. First of all, if like when you eat something, it comes, it leaves your system eventually through the excretion process. And at that point, then the, another question is like, is the spell still in effect or has it done its job and is it finished? Which is curious. You know, that might be really useful for a hex. Like, so I don't really know if I want like a hex going through my body. Anyways. Yeah. So when you eat a binding spell, in a way, I kind of think it could be there's, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. One is, like, the binding spell inside of you. Not that I would recommend anybody eating paper or anything, but, like, you know, whatever. Like, when you put it inside of you, in a way, like, because it is in your body, like, you are asserting dominance over that individual and kind of, in a way, surrounding that binding spell with your will in a very, like, physical manner. And so because of that, you could think of it a lot like dominance over the will of this other person um, and essentially stopping their action and it could you could consider it to amplify the spell's energy but the other thought is something about like the layers through which it has to travel so for instance like inside you and you could think about this on a more macro level or you could even get super microscopic where like as you digest it this energy kind of gets distributed through like through your body and you know the different ways the cells take up nutrients and whatever and so the spell kind of takes on like a larger form in essence and becomes like a part of you so the binding spell for instance like if you were to include some kind of nutrition with the binding spell like those nutrients are a part of your body and they'll be used to produce like atp and other things like cellular energy as you could also think of it in terms of like leaching right so this binding spell not only is it's essentially taking the energy away from the person to, like, for them to do a particular action, like a constant kind of leeching. But then that begs the question, how long does that last? Is it only until, you know, you excrete the remains of the spell? And, like, how would you know when that is? And so on and so forth. That's kind of the where my mind goes. But curious to hear other thoughts. It's hard because, like, I mean, I've definitely heard or read stories of people talking about, like, accidental self-hexing. I don't know how much I actually believe in it versus how much of it is just my OCD being like, you've hexed yourself. Um, which is why, like, sometimes if I do painful workings, I'm always just, like, super paranoid. I'm like, what if I, what if a drop of this got on my porch? It's going to be there forever. I don't know why that's my hexing voice. <laughs> It was very Boston, actually. Very, very yeah, Boston. Well, <laughs> so I don't know how much I genuinely believe that. It's hard to sort of disentangle, disentangle that sort of like obsessive thoughts about it. If I was in that situation, I guess that's a good way to put how I might look at this. If I were in that situation and I knew I accidentally ate a binding spell, I would probably like do an uncrossing or whatever <laughs> for myself and be like, well, better safe than sorry. Now, how it would manifest if I didn't know that I ate it or whatever, that's a different story. I don't know. I do think, yeah, like if it was unintentional, then I would do the same. I would like do an uncrossing and, you know, like take care of it or even just try and dismantle the spell if I had remnants and could do so. But like it, yeah, I think it would depend. Like if if I ate it accidentally, I don't really, that's interesting because then I don't know if maybe, yeah, because like my examples from earlier, I kind of like, those are things that I would maybe... 
if it happened accidentally, I could maybe go back and like readjust the spell to do maybe something different if I realized I accidentally ate it. Or even like you could make something with the intention of eating it and have those kind of be like your ultimate goals. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thought. I don't know. Like would it, if it's meant to bind somebody else and you ate it, would it actually do you any harm? But would it, if it unfreezes in your stomach, does it then unbind? Do you see what I mean? Mm. Or then if it, if their name is digested by your stomach acid, are you causing them harm? Like it, <laughs> it's just a weird, like, it's a weird thought, right? Like what's going on um, during that process? Is there kind of any mechanism there? Or does it just not matter because it's accidental and therefore you're not putting that intent into it? I mean, if we're thinking about like stomach acid dissolving like paper, I mean, if... <laughs> You go into work and your co- your co-workers like their faces heavily exfoliated. <laughs> but like if you think about it in terms of like stomach acid, right? Like, yeah, the the ice or whatever you froze it in might melt, but at the same time, like the paper would be destructed by the stomach acid. So like isn't kind of the same thing happening in a sense? I don't know that maybe the destruction would mean that the spell is null and so then nothing would happen anymore. I think that would kind of depend on what you, again, whether you designed it to be eaten or not. What do you guys think about the eclipse water example? So basically, the uh, this this assumes that eclipse water is somehow evil and um, unpleasant stuff, which I don't personally believe, but let's just work off that assumption. And if somebody accidentally drinks it, do you think that has the same effect? I mean, at that point, are you per- so you're tricking them into drinking it? Yeah, for some for some reason you're doing that. Maybe it's like a, an evil experiment, I don't know. I don't see how that would be any different than a hex, in my personal opinion. If you're tricking someone into drinking eclipse water for a specific purpose, I, I would see it as similar to like a hex or, or a jinx. I don't think it would be something like super intense. I would probably see it more as a jinx, just because like, I mean, I'm just trying to think. Like if you had somebody, if you were trying to trick somebody into drinking eclipse water like why would you do that my thoughts are like when the when an eclipse happens the sun is essentially blocked out so perhaps you're trying to like block them from their power for a time or like maybe block like good emotions for a time whatever the intent might be um and if that's the case then like it certainly is a drink or a hex depending upon the severity of the spell that you're you're trying to do with it i think if they accidentally drink it like i don't know that that would really do anything you also have the question of like if they don't believe in it, then will it do anything to them? Yeah, I don't know. The whole idea of, like, planetary waters is something that I really struggle with because I don't know that, like, that is something that, to me, is so easily affected by a placebo effect. Like, so, so, so easily. Um, and so I really am not convinced whether or not it actually has an effect on anything. But, yeah, I mean, I would see it as probably, like, a drink slash hex, depending upon what you were trying to use it for. Yeah, I think the original question is really interesting because it implies like a morally ambiguous outcome, like you, as if you're giving somebody the water to test the results. So you don't know if it's going to be a hex or not. So it's almost like saying, is it a hex if you don't know for sure that there's going to be a negative outcome? It's like a, it's I, like a blind experiment, a single blind experiment, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I still think that that is morally kind of on the darker side of gray because you know that something bad could happen to them and therefore it's still hex-ish <laughs> maybe I mean, unless it. you intended to do it like your intention is to hex and if it didn't work then you would just go to something else like that's what i would do if i were yeah, like, like, using other people's like, like, not really cool oh, i want to hex you it's like let's just try this first and if this doesn't work then i'll go off and do something else do something a little more powerful yeah okay next question can a song be an audio sigil i mean 
Yeah, I think so. This isn't necessarily a sigil example, but I do know I was recently rereading um, Jason Miller's Elements of Spellcasting, I think is what it's called. What is it? Spellcrafting, sorry. And one of the keys that he has is something where he had like a neighbor who was being super loud and he listened to a particular song and just like standing outside and like let the emotions that it invoked be like the fuel for the spell. And like there was no candle, like nothing. It was just the song and the emotions that it invoked. So in a way, like, yes, I do think that you could have an audio sigil and it would be effective. I don't mean, I don't really know why not. You could even consider like, is a ringtone an audio sigil? Like, I, I don't know. What if you had like a, a sigil for communication that was your ringtone? So every time you answer the phone, the desire for like a flow of good conversation was always like the start of the conversation. I think that's actually a very brilliant idea. But then how would you design such a sigil? Like, would it be based on like the waveform pattern or would it be kind of more similar to like a mantra or something like that? I know last week we talked about um, Musica Universalis and Phil gave us a really good explanation of that. Like how, how would you design such a sigil? Yeah, I mean, that would be, that would certainly be a good way to do it. I think if you really wanted to like draw down the energies associated with a particular planet, deity, whatever you're working with. I don't know. Felt, do you have any thoughts? I mean, designing by waveform would be very interesting. Or you could do like the shape of the note. I don't know. I guess my question would be, what would be the purpose of the sigil? Because like in my mind, sigils are kind of not a one and done thing. That's not exactly what I mean. Hmm. But it's like, you know, a lot of people talk about like a lot of the power of the sigils in the releasing of the sigil or the destruction of the sigil. And so it's like you put power into drawing the sigil and then you burn it or whatever. So I guess I would be curious as to how that would look with an audio form. Like would it basically, in my mind, then it's almost more like a word of power or like a, a chant than it is like a sigil. I'm trying to think, what if you, because like there are things like amulets and talismans where like this sigil isn't just like burned and done, like something that you would carry around with you for a continuous length of time. It might be interesting if you designed a sound, maybe based on notes associated with, you know, whatever, and then Bastrus like drew, connected them, the notes in some form and like that was the basis of your sigil which has like the musical essentially melody within it and then you could also like have the sound as well to just like build correspondence upon each other it is yeah it's an interesting idea um the idea of audio sigils in in terms of like full songs actually fully scares me because the it kind of opens up the sort of conspiratorial ideas of you know people playing messages over the radio and and the songs on the radio uh sigils etc etc which i i mean i think that's obviously conspiracy theory but i think it can it can wade into that territory quite quickly i'm gonna profess i don't know a ton about sigils so i think that in theory, yes, possible, but my understanding behind them is is not really well fleshed out enough to give a good answer. I do think Phil had a really good point that, yeah, a lot of the time I've seen people say that they kind of make the, make the sigil and then almost forget about it and kind of let it do its work. And music is inherently catchy, right? Like it sticks in your brain. It's, it's good in a way, you know, like a mantra that you kind of, you memorize so much that it almost becomes a part of you and you can sort of say it in your sleep. It's the opposite of that, right? It's you're you're constantly rem- remembering it, and it's 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 worming its way into into you. So, 
Yeah, I'm not sure that I would call that a sigil, but maybe I am just fundamentally misunderstanding the concept. Yeah, I guess for me, I wouldn't call it a sigil. I would, like I said earlier, I would call it like a word of power or some sort of chant. I mean, because I, I have done like temporary songs before where I like enter a state of trance, let a song come out, and then I don't record it or I don't write it down and I, it's gone. <laughs> it's usually loose my brain. But then I don't see how that would be different than like a normal like rhyming or chant type thing i would say if you're like looking and like sitting down and writing down a piece of music and you're connecting it somehow kind of like a sigil i could see that being like like charging the sigil whatever audio through an audio way i think that could make sense i mean that could be cool like take a sheet of music and like do different points and then like connect them i don't know that could be interesting so that i would consider more of a of a sigil but then again there is still like a visual aspect to it yeah i think that's i think that's maybe the key point that i like it would have to be a symbol of some kind whether that be through connecting the notes or maybe through something else and then yeah you could maybe charge it with the music or do the thing with the ringtone where maybe like the sigil is i don't know like this the screensaver on your phone um like the, the photo on your phone and then like your ringtone is related to the sigil and so like that's like doubling the performance that's kind of how i would see it work like if it were to work at all um but i do think if you take the sigil aspect out of it like the design of a symbolic representation of something then it doesn't become a symbol or as not a symbol (laughs) it is um you take away the the sigil itself then it's no longer and that symbolic ideology of a thought or a desire and intention then it no longer is a sigil it's turning into something else i do agree with, with that point Another thought I just had, so there in medieval music theory is called the Guidonian hand. For those, obviously, this is an audio medium, so people won't be able to see me. But basically what you do is you hold a hand up and you sort of like touch. It's, it's a way that people learn sight singing. So you touch each part of your hand and each part of your hand represents a different note. So I could see that sort of becoming, you know, like you're touching your thumb, then you're touching your pinky, you touch your pointer, and suddenly it's like a shape. So I could see that almost working as a sort of sigil. But again, there's a visual aspect to it. But Not that's kind of cool. I totally was like watching you do that and thinking like, oh, it's like <laughs> dialing into the gods or something. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually an interesting idea. Maybe I'll have to experiment with the Guidonian hand. <laughs> What it very much reminded me of, actually, is um, I had some friends actually over in the US and they used to do uh, sign language for a choir. And the movement you were doing, obviously, you can't see Phil, but the movement you were doing very much looked like the sign language that um, they would do for deaf individuals who would um, attend to listen to the religious music. So that's kind of interesting, actually. I wonder if there's kind of some parallels there. All right. So the next one. Okay, so um, the question I had was, does the astral plane have a genius loci? Um, there was a discussion um, we were having the other day about genius loci. So the idea is that they are uh, spirits of place. And um, what does that of place mean? And if we imagine the astral realm as some somewhere that is kind of divorced from our physical earthly reality, is is it possible to have a genius loci? Is there is there a, a singular location? Or is it so lacking in phys- physicality that you can't have a spirit tied to a particular location there? And I'm going to preface this with saying that my knowledge of astral is pretty limited. So I would like to hear your thoughts. 
So when I was a wee baby practitioner, I did a lot of like astral projection. I put that in quotes for a reason. (laughs) And my understanding after floating around the depths of Tumblr was this idea that there are different spirits that inhabit different parts of the astral plane, but I wouldn't count them as genius loci. Now to go off of this, I don't really believe in astral projection anymore. I used to be a very wholehearted believer in it. Now I don't really believe that it's a literal thing. I more believe in like inner trance work. So that's my stance on astral projection in general. But my understanding from what I saw in the community who was like really into astral projection, like the energy work community or whatever, I don't know if there is a genius loci of the astral realm because the whole thing is kind of like a spirit of place if that makes sense because i feel like a spirit of a place makes sense in a mundane world where there's kind of like a liminality but i don't know if it makes sense in a place that's like there is no mundane aspect at all to the astral plane okay i'm with phil here in regards (laughs) to the astral realm i don't really fully agree with this idea that it like truly is like a separate realm that you can travel to. Um, I think that might be taking things a little bit too literally. However, I will say that I do think that there is kind of a liminal space between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And if we're thinking about kind of this liminal space, and I do think that there are genius loci maybe within, within that plane of existence, realm, liminal region, whatever you want to call it. But I think when we get into like more of the spiritual realm, I don't necessarily think there are genius loci just because I think it's a couple of things. First is that like it doesn't matter where you are. It seems like people have access to every spirit, um, generally speaking, unless you're like, you know, not initiated into a tradition and all of that. And two, I don't think it makes sense. Like I don't know what would hold them in one particular place um, in a realm that is mostly spiritual and has no kind of like material you know, thing to keep them in an area, kind of like Fel was saying. I do think, like, if we're talking in the liminal plane, yeah, I do think genius look can be a thing. If we're talking more, like, in the fully spiritual realm, I don't think that it's a thing there. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you guys. I think of it as um, spirits that are um, kind of inhabiting both realms. They're kind of rooted, if you like, in the physical realm. So there's that kind of earthly tie, and they're Therefore, I can't really understand how that tie would manifest in like a purely spiritual sense. Like, I guess I think of the the earth as, uh, you know, being quite grounding and, um, yeah, rooting and, and, tie, and tying something down. And I just in the most basic of ways, the concept of a genius loci in my mind doesn't really translate to some, a purely kind of celestial being. But that might just be my misunderstanding of it. Um, I know that some people believe that when you pass on, um, your body kind of goes to the astral, whatever. But again, like, why would you be tied to a particular place? Like, what would cause that? Why, why wouldn't you be able to move um, from that location? Or would you be able to move? Like, what, what would cause those associations to manifest? I don't know. So I can't really see a basis for it, I guess. I mean, my only thought is maybe, like, if upon death we retain some kind of knowledge of a previous life i don't know maybe there's a place that you're particularly drawn to and you keep returning to that place every now and then or perhaps it's the dwelling of your family and so you return there um just to like check in <laughs> i guess on them um, not a spirit don't know what you do as a spirit like maybe in that case 
it would be kind of a genius look like sort of like also not really that's kind of the only thing i can think of is maybe just a place where you where one continuously returns or maybe like a selection like all of your ancestors return to this one place because like that's where you where you are right um you could maybe consider that to be like a genius look of sorts i don't know though then you have things like i'm thinking of like gettysburg right so there was the war that happened in gettysburg and a lot of people like i recall when i went there i definitely felt the presence of something else like it was it was pretty intense i let yeah i cried it was it was intense um and so then it's like is the intensity of that feeling maybe f- because i don't want to use the word haunted but like it's maybe a heavily it's a place that is a genius look guy for maybe soldiers who fought in that particular war um or is it just heavy from you know other reasons i don't know i don't yeah i don't know i am tempted to say no but i do think that maybe a large gathering of spirits at one particular region you could consider it to be a genius look high in that case yes but there's a reason like does that make sense it does yeah i think that a genius look high has to actually embody part of a place so that's my dispute on that so but then again I guess you could say maybe the cultural history of what you were uh, what you were describing could embody it I don't know yeah it's like it's like a place where the war happened like people were fallen right so like in that case like I maybe that's a better example where that could maybe fit in but even then like I've still it doesn't quite fit like what a genius look guy like really is yeah, I personally, uh, I definitely have had similar experiences at Gettysburg. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have. Um, God, I almost got lost in Gettysburg. Like, we were following the GPS. It was the middle of the night. We got lost and a massive fog rolled over the battlefields when we realized we were lost in the battlefield. It was the worst. But anyway, um, I made it out alive. I don't think that's a genius loci, though. I don't believe places or I don't see places where, like, tragedy has occurred I don't really see that as like, those are like, I mean, I, I have a very specific view of like ghosts and memory. Um, I believe a lot of ghosts are just like memory embodied. So I would kind of view that as like the memory slash ghosts, but not necessarily the genius loci. I, I don't think that it's necessarily the memory of a place. I think genius loci is like alive and present. And I think that there might be aspects of that culture that have touched it, but I, I would not necessarily see it as like it only not that. Yeah. I would say that it predominantly is like the current spirit of the place rather than like the historical spirit of the place. If that makes sense. Like I think the genius loci adapts and grows with the place that it is in. And there might be aspects of that memory within it, but I don't think that it is primarily made up of ghosts or or memory if that makes sense i think it's defined by the culture of whoever is currently there yeah that's a good point mm-hmm. yeah i think like a really classic example would be like a mountain or something or right. some yeah something something that really kind of embodies the region that you're in um and kind of feels like it's it's present ever present everywhere around you and uh, it's it's kind of the spirit of that region, not a spirit inhabiting that region. I think that's the, the the key difference for me. But I guess it's quite hard to articulate. So, like, okay, if we're looking at, like, nymphs, for example. So nymphs are, like, very much, like, aspects of the land. They inhabit trees, inhabit rivers or, or waterways. 
But I view them as being like free and mobile. Like they can move. They don't really necessarily, I don't think they stray too far out of a place, but I think they're, they're sort of more immediate, more not tangible. Obviously they're intangible, but I view them as more like immediate to communicate with, or like people do divination with nymphs. People worship them. The genius loci, I kind of almost imagine it like the climate of an area. Not like not like the literal climate, but something that stays within the area is defined by the area and shifts and changes. So it's like something that's far more steady, I guess. If if nymphs are like birds that are like running around, the genius loci is almost like the clouds or the the air, the sky, like these bigger less mobile aspects now you can like work with the genius locate i suppose and, like make offerings but it's like this thing that moves through people and through the place and is not necessarily embodied by one thing i just <laughs> went way off the deep i usually don't go super deep off the off the deep end with philosophy but that's how i view the genius locate is it's like the genius loci of downtown boston <laughs> you know it's like this energy that you can just feel when you're there and it moves through people it moves through places and it's just something that is so you go there and you're like oh i know where exactly where i am or like lil italy in boston that place has the strongest genius look I have ever like seen because it is so defined by the people that live there. And it's it's palpable. But it's not something that I can just do divination with the genius loci exactly because I don't really see it as one thing. It's more like this spiritual or spirit. I agree with you. And I think that this is a really good jumping off point for our next question. Are the urban genius loci of train stations? Can you work with them? Are there guardians, the pigeons that reside within? And reside actually has a French accent, so I think it's reside. <laughs> no, let's skip that. Yeah, my phone autocorrects things to have accents on them. <laughs> yeah, so I think when I wrote that, I was also thinking about nymphs as well and not just genius loci. I mean, I personally, as like a city dweller, I think that there is definitely something to like urban divinity or urban supernatural things. Like, I don't think it's limited to just parts of nature. Because I think, you know, wherever humans are, we bring we bring our nonsense with us, you know? <laughs> we bring our energy with us, whatever the quote energy is. We bring our spirituality with us. I don't know. That was just a thought I had because I was waiting for the train and it was late. <laughs> I was thinking, like, can you appease <laughs> the, like, spirits of the train station? I did see a meme one time that showed an altar to Mercury. Yes. In a substation, like a substation, and I was like, that's fucking brilliant. Whoever did that, like, I want to be your friend. I know, I saw that too. I have had that thought so many times. It would just get taken down by the it would totally get taken down, but like, I would put it back up. (laughs) Yeah, that's like, like, not a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, I think there are spirits of urban places, like, you know, genius loci specifically. People often talk about them being in natural places, but I think they're everywhere because you know i mean i just gave that whole example about like the north end uh the little italy little italy in boston it's very palpable like very much like a presence and in terms of tr- in train stations though because i feel like where i get hung up with the genius loci in, in particular is like how big or how small is it you know people have talked about genius loci of entire regions and then there's also the like land spirits of like a single corner of a field so i think that is where I get hung up of, of where does one genius loci begin and the other end. I don't see why there wouldn't be like nymphs or spirits. Of, well, nymphs maybe not, but spirits, some sort of land spirit of a train station. Sure. 
oh, <laughs> I'm going to start communing with the pigeons. <laughs> um, but in terms of a genius loci, I don't know. Like, maybe if there was, like, one particular train car, maybe there's, like, one that's, like, yeah, this one's definitely got something here. But I, I ultimately, I don't know if it would just be a greater part of the city's genius loci. I don't know. I think they're very liminal spaces, yeah. first of all, because of the, you know, really obvious relationship to kind of transitions. The first thing that sprang to mind is the London Tube for me and um, how you mentioned singular train cars. I could think of um, individual lines. They all have very, very specific energies. Like if you if you teleported me right now to uh, a random tube car and um, I, I, yeah, I was not allowed to look at the map, I bet I could tell you which line I was on because they just have that specific feeling to them um some of them were built hundreds of years ago um some of them are much newer they so some of them are kind of dingier dirtier louder all of those things have a really profound effect on your your mentality and your feeling when you're there and yeah i think i would argue that there's kind of an embodiment there which i think strays into the territory of genius loci but how you would begin to work with that i do not know (laughs) um i think that's where i kind of get stuck that's interesting now that you say that because I was thinking about how me and my housemates, we described each of Boston's subways as different types of horror media. <laughs> and like, which one's the Twilight Zone? Which one's Welcome to Night Vale? Which one's the Magnus Archives? Like, and we were able to define pretty much unanimously, like, which line, ha- and like, we're like, oh, this line has this energy, this line has this energy. So that's actually very interesting because definitely we very much, I was thinking about if I close my eyes, you put me like I wasn't allowed to like look at the physical train car. If you close my eyes, I wonder if I'd be able to tell what line I was on just based on the presence of it. Like there's definitely lines or particular stations that are just like like there's one particular station where I will literally like mutter. I have a charm in my wallet because I'm like this place is cursed, and like I like mutter blessings to myself as I walk off. I was like, oh, this place is. So super cursed all times of day there actually might be something to that but again i'm not sure how much one can work individually with a genius loci versus like other types of land spirits maybe one could work with certain spirits of that place literal like land spirits and like offer them something i don't know but i don't know if you could actually work with the genius loci I don't know, you could work with the rats or a train station <laughs> work with the pigeons that's what i'm saying get the pigeons <laughs> I don't have anything bad, so. <laughs> I don't know. It's a very interesting thought. Just me and Fell on like a wild one. Okay, so kind of along similar lines, sort of. Can you work with stuff in the museum? I have to admit, <laughs> when I saw this, my mind immediately went to, what is it, Night of the Museum where everything comes to life and yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, like you could do it like that. No, that's one of those things where, Phil, you mentioned something earlier about like working with the memory of something. And that's kind of what you think the ghosts are. But I also think that you can work with memory in kind of a very literal way. And in that case, I think you'd be working more with like the memory of historical events more than anything like specifically material. It's interesting, actually, because when I was in Washington, D.C. for a trip, like a long time ago, um, I went to the Holocaust Museum. And when you're there, one of the things that you can do is you can walk through the train car. I mean, I'd be like, there's palpable energy in that train car. And it is like really, really intense. It's one of those things where like I did it once and I will never do it again. Like it kind of scarred me a little bit. 
And in that case, like, it's more the memory of what happened, but it's like the memory as provided to you by the people who inhabited the train car. It's more of like go to a museum and like honoring the memory of something. That's a, a very good point. I mean, like I, when I went to Prague, I accidentally <laughs> got trapped in the medieval torture chamber that they have beneath the, because uh, there's only one way in and one way out. How did you do that? Well, because there's only one way in and one way out and people kept coming in. And I was like, let me out of here. There was like definitely some, there, there is definitely like something, two places that are so old and as intense as those areas, like that whole castle was like, well, there was like a lot of, there were so many things that had happened there. I mean, like I work in historic parts of New England and there is just, there's palpable energy every day that I work there specifically where I work was where like a lot of the beginnings and a lot of the main parts of the American Revolution happened so like there there definitely is something there and like sometimes I'll literally sit in one of the the pews that of the church the historic church that I work at and I'll just like close my eyes and I just yeah there's there's definitely something and it stands out against like the greater you know genius look I of that part of Boston because it's it's very distinct and very prominent and very old. It was kind of like Gettysburg, like we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Gettysburg has like a very distinct kind of energy. But how that translates to museums, I'm not sure. Because I personally, when I've gone to museums, like while I love the historical aspects and I'm always like blown away and I'm like, wow, this is like a real life. <laughs> like this is like a real life uh, <laughs> Greek statue. But I don't necessarily feel a spiritual connection beyond what I like know. So like places like when I visited Ellis Island, I remember getting really emotional at Ellis Island because it, the it's a very intense place. Like also when you go there as a kid, they'll have you do things like go through things that the immigrants in Ellis Island used to go through. Um, so there, that's another aspect where you're like, oh God. But that's the place specifically. Whereas a museum, I'm just thinking like your standard museum of art or history museum where it's divorced from the place that those things are originally from. I'm not sure if you can really work with those things. Now, this is interesting because the museum near me is actually building a replica Greek temple. Yeah, it's very cool. They've been working on it for like two years now. It's going to open this fall. And I'm very excited to go. And like they actually already have like a replica. I think it's Egyptian. I think. Uh, but they already have like a replica little temple in there that they use actual stones. And there is something when I walk into that little corner of the museum where they like have it sort of sealed off. It feels like a sacred space because of the way that it is sealed off and set up how it was supposed to be set up. But when it's just like I'm looking at a statue that's like under museum lighting and there's big museum windows, there's not as much a connection that I feel. And like I've felt connection to specific objects before, like I could collect old books But I think there's something where it's like, I am personally like holding this item and there's something, there's an energy exchange happening there. Whereas I'm not sure if that happens in museums. I don't know. You bring up a really interesting point of differentiating like an art museum from a place that holds real history and you can clearly feel like a difference. Like I was just thinking um, we had like a really beautiful art museum back home um, and I'm thinking about the numerous times that I've gone there and like the connections that I had to that place versus the connections that I felt like when I went to the 9-11 Memorial in New York. And like, it, it was, 
it was different. It was almost like the 9-11 memorial. Like, oh, my God, it was so fucking emotional. Um, I cried, like, every two seconds. And it was one of those things where, like, they also had um, pieces of steel, like, from the towers that were in the museum that you could, like, touch. And when I touched that steel bar, I totally lost it. But, like, that's a very different feeling from, like, the museum back home, which more has, like, personal associations with, with it more than any kind of like historical memory that like would make it have any kind of like specific energy that you could do something with. That's actually really interesting that you bring that up because we don't, well, when you have art in a museum, it wouldn't really, it wouldn't, we don't have art museums. They call, we call them galleries, like they're separate entities. So I'm just kind of interested that you, the differentiation. Well, there are galleries within the art museum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's strange. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was just thinking like if I could work with it, if I could work with any spirit in a museum, it would be uh, Dippy in the Natural History Museum, who is a 21-meter diplodocus. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, but I, I did kind of have a, an embarrassing story um, from when I was in my undergraduate, uh, doing my undergraduate degree. I did, doxing myself slightly here, but um, I did my undergraduate degree right next door to the British Museum. And uh, as you probably know, um, England colonized many, many, many countries and stole lots of artifacts. So it actually has a really great, um, albeit stolen, room full of Greek artifacts, um, statues, um, tablets, all sorts of things. And so what I used to do was I would go into Gordon Square and I'd do my um, kernips and I'd wash my hands there and then I'd go to the British Museum and I would go and quietly say my prayers, usually in my head, in a museum because it would be somewhere in the middle of a city because London is very, very busy. It's not really somewhere you get a lot of privacy. Um, somewhere where I could feel connected. So although I wouldn't necessarily call that working with a spirit because to me it just felt like somewhere where I could kind of get to the more of a religious connection, devotional connection. It's kind of adjacent, I think. Working with specific objects, though, I think you're kind of limited because you only have fragments, right? So you, you're, and you're also very limited by the interpretation of the historian. So you have maybe, um, you know, a fragment of a tablet, and um, somebody has told you something about this tablet, but you don't really have the personal connections that the individual who made the tablet um, has. And I think that would be a limiting factor because you're you're maybe not able to connect with it in um, the way that um, it originally was intended. But maybe maybe I'm misinterpreting that. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's true because, like, I have family from India, so I'm part Indian, though. Don't look like that. Don't look like it, but I am. <laughs> and when I go to sections in museums that, like, are related to kind of Asian Indian culture and history like I do feel a personal connection because it's like a familial thing um and I understand the culture and I've participated in the culture and it's been a big part of my life growing up but if I were to go to like another gallery that contained maybe objects from you know South American culture like I wouldn't connect as much to those because I don't have that personal history with it right so I do think that definitely plays a factor um, in terms of your connection and what you could do with something that you see in a museum. Yeah, for sure. Also, the British Museum should give everything back. <laughs> just, just having that on the record here, like it's full of stolen stuff and it's uh, quite bad. It's interesting because, yeah, like I like I was saying earlier, I don't really see museum, like I connect with things in museums sometimes, but it's not usually in a spiritual way, which is interesting. Like I connect with it more in just like a personal level. Like when I look at like, fun 18th century clothes I'm just like yes I love it um but like I don't feel any sort of spiritual connection 
to it. I almost feel more of a spiritual connection if I'm making my own 18th century clothes versus like seeing an actual one that was like worn by someone. Like I have a very unique relationship with the place that I work. And not only because like that place is important, but, but also because like I am now a part of its legacy. So everything inside of it becomes more important on a spiritual level. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And actually, in the example I gave when I was kind of going to the um, the British Museum, it was it was almost as much about the ritual of going there. Like it was really conveniently close to university for me, so it would be like part of my routine and part of, um, like I guess like regular practice. So I think it was just as much about that as about the objects and the environment itself. We'll call it on that one, man. This episode got really philosophical. I think we intended for that to happen. Okay, um, if nobody has any more thoughts on that, we will kind of close this out as we are reaching our time limit. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And just as a reminder, we do have a YouTube channel. If you have not found us and subscribed, please do so. Um, We will include a link in the episode description if you would like to listen there. I believe, Fel, there's like, we're up to the, what, the 10th episode, I think, there. Yeah, I'll get around around to the episode. We'll we'll upload more as we get to it. You can also follow us on Instagram, especially for these episodes. If you have spiritual shower thoughts that you would like us to address, please answer our story questions that we put out there, um, and you might see yourself featured in one of these. Great. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next week. Mm -hmm.